0: thanks for listening to the rest is politics sign up to the rest is politics plus to enjoy ad-free listening receive a weekly newsletter join our members chat room and gain early access to live show tickets just go to the rest is that's the rest is
1: welcome to the rest is politics question time with me rory stewart
0: And with me, Alistair Campbell, and Rory, we said on the main podcast we were going to kick off with Taiwan, which we planned to do on the the main podcast, but we got sidetracked in relation to the Middle East. Sean Winter, will the election result in Taiwan give greater stability or taunt China into action? Well, first, let's a
1: little bit on what actually happened in Taiwan, Alistair.
0: So, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, we said this was going to be one of the first really big ones in this election year. And the DPP, they won. That is the governing party. The outgoing president uh, couldn't stand because she'd already done two terms. So Lai came in and he has won with just over 40%. Now, the other two parties, which at one point looked like they might come together, the kmt and the tpp the taiwan people's party they split the opposition vote and what's happened is that they've ended up with it's a very good win it's a third win in a row for the dpp but it does does give a sense that they're moving from a two-party country to a a three-party country and within the assembly within the legislative assembly um they won't have a majority they've got 52 seats KMT, the second party got 51, and the third party got, I think it was eight or nine. So it means that they don't quite have a a majority, but it's a pretty good win. And it's a win that was secured despite a pretty aggressive campaign by China to try to persuade people through various means to vote for the KMT.
1: And and just to remind people, so KMT, the Kuomintang, uh, was the Nationalist Party and sort of founding party of Taiwan. It was the party of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek who, who moved the national government of China to Taiwan after the Communist Revolution. And they are supported by the Chinese state because they're seen as much more friendly towards China. They tend to emphasize deepening economic and diplomatic ties with China, whereas the DPP, so the, the lot that just won, have tended to talk a bit more about de-risking and diversifying and balancing their investments in China with investments elsewhere.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you know, Rui, we talked on the the main podcast uh, about the Red Sea being such an important shipping route. Almost a half of the world's container ships pass through the Taiwan Strait every year. And and as you've been saying, ever since we started this podcast, focusing on the role of the semiconductor industry in Taiwan. So the reason why this election was getting so much attention around the world was because of China. It wasn't because of Taiwan. It was because of China and China's intentions and some very interesting reactions from China. Xi Jinping has said nothing so far. What they've done is they've focused in their reaction in commenting on the comments by other countries around the world. So, for example, David Cameron said that he welcomed this as a testament to Taiwan's vibrant democracy. And immediately, Chinese embassy in the UK said, we firmly oppose the wrong practices of the British and we urge them to stop any words or deeds that interfere in China's internal affairs. Almost word for word, they said that to the Japanese foreign minister, uh, Yoko Kamikawa, and and Joe Biden, who, who although he he came out and said he reiterated the U.S. doesn't support Taiwanese independence, the U.S. official line is once again Taiwan has demonstrated the strength of their robust democratic system and electoral process. And again, straight out comes from the Chinese Foreign Ministry: we have lodged solemn representations with the U.S. over these comments. So that is they are making clear they don't like the result. And they're also making clear to powers around the world don't get too excited by this because we still see this as ultimately a place that is going to be reunified with China.
1: Yeah. And and I guess to just finish on Shan's question, um, the likelihood is, I guess, that Xi Jinping is not going to take military action until he sees what happens in the US election because he may be gambling that Trump coming in may make it easier. To push ahead with reunification. Big change in the calculus, obviously, of the Taiwanese is the way that Hong Kong has been treated. So, had China really found a way of integrating Hong Kong in a way that really respected one country, two systems, they might have had a better hope of a peaceful unification of Taiwan. Um, And then there's this calculation about how the economy plays in. So, some commentators say because the Chinese economy is weaker, Xi Jinping is less likely to want to do military action. I have a part of me that thinks that sometimes when your economy gets weaker, you look for distractions and kind of national adventures to try to get the public back on side. So I think actually a weaker Chinese economy may increase the chance Mm, of mm. him acting.
0: Yeah. Now I said on the the main podcast that the, the subject which was raised by more questioners than any other was Michael Gove's appearance at a select committee where he was grilled by, Liam Byrne in particular, about the Freeport in Teesside. So, Sheila Kennedy, what exactly is going on in this Sports scandal? And should we get Toby Jones to make a TV show about it? should he play Michael Gove? Julie Harrison, this week we saw Gove at the Freeport Scrutiny Committee. Why do the mayors not have to report to the House of Commons? The Tees Valley Mayor hardly attends his own scrutiny committee. Uh, Graham Gardner, I saw a clip of Michael Gove at a select committee hearing squirming on the subject of Teesworks, Works part of the Freeport's project. Is this another Tory-managed scandal in the making where millions find their way into the pockets of donors and shady characters? And so it goes on. Mistress Purdy, please can you just Michael Gove at the Teesside Freeport? He avoided all questions and his links to Michelle Mohn PPE contract seems to show a concerning pattern um if you follow this Freeport
1: story yeah well, just a sort of, sort of little bit of background um so this is the first and the biggest of these free ports which have been announced and the free ports of which I think there were eight of them initially announced the idea is that it allows it's a bit of land in Britain but it's a place where you allow goods to be imported without tariffs excise duties and other taxes being paid before materials are shipped on again so it's a it, it's loosely based on the way that China developed through Shenzhen, mm. where they set up essentially a special economic zone on the edge of Hong Kong. And the particular idea from the government is you would go to areas of the country is part of the leveling up agenda which have been more left behind. And their hope was that by getting rid of the regulations, getting rid of the taxes, they could create some amazing kind of private sector heaven which would create eighteen thousand jobs. And since then it's found itself mired in lots of different types of controversy. Back to you.
0: So as I understand it, it's very, very complicated. So Private Eye have actually been, a bit like the post office, Private Eye have been banging on about this um, endlessly, but most of the mainstream media have not been picking it up. And I think it does have a feel of one of those slow burn scandals. And, and, And essentially it is hard. And like all of these things, it's complicated. But essentially a firm was set up by people who were friends, associates of Ben and who's the, the Tory mayor up there. And they were given options to buy this land at one pound an acre, including right. the rights to all the scrap metal on the lands. So they've exercised yep. those rights. Then they lease back the land for development for, a, as it happens, a wind farm maker. They sell the metal. In the first year of their accounts, they're up by about 134 million, profits of over 50 million. Next to zero procurement process, so what Liam Byrne seemed to be saying in his grilling of Gove was, at the very least, this is an absolutely dire approach to securing the best value for taxpayers, and at the worst case, there is corruption at the heart of it. Gove commissioned a report last year to look into some of these allegations that were made. It was supposed to report last summer, and there's still still no sign of the report, no sign of a timetable. And the feeling is that they're looking to sort of bury this until after a general election.
1: So, so in the worst case, we're looking at corruption. And even in the best case, we're looking at another classic example of how badly the government does procurement and deals with the private sector, that it appears to be giving enormous financial windfalls to the private sector by selling them assets at well under market value.
0: Yeah. And, and, and these are, I mean, I don't think Ben Houchin is denying that these developers, a guy called Musgrave and another one called Martin Corney, that they are kind of quite close to him. Uh, and they've been given this remarkable deal, which has made them an awful lot of money. I've always felt these freeports are part of this anarcho-capitalism drive of the radical right. And so you said that the, the, the government projects this as part of the leveling up, but this looks like leveling up for a few people, not the many, as it were.
1: Yeah. Good. Well, let's let's get the next question coming in. And I think it's worth, worth watching that because it does sound like it's pretty terrifying and, and as you say, a lot of people coming in. Anyway, um, loads more questions. Let's take a break. So, one that I quite like from Percy, you've spoken a lot about the challenges in Afghanistan and Myanmar, more recently in the Middle East. What is it about these places still gives you hope and is there anything listeners can do to help? I mean, this is a good opportunity to talk about the amazing work that Shoshana, my wife, does with Turquoise Mountain. Well, listen, Rory. Rather than you do it,
0: because that would be sort of almost like <laughs> a form of kind of weird nepotism. Um, I, <laughs> you and I were at an event last night run by the the Marshall Scholars, um, with some American uh, Congressmen and women of both Republican and, and Democrat. And part of the event was Shoshana doing a presentation about Turquoise Mountain, the charity that you set up and she works on. And and it was, I've got to say, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And, and you say, what makes you hopeful? The thing that made me hopeful was her saying, look, the Taliban kind of know that we are employing women and we are doing, they just sort of let us get on with it. And she talked about, you know, the private sector being maybe treated a little bit less brutally as it were. But I have to say the the products that they were that they were making, be they carpets, be they jewelry, be they woodcrafts and so forth, were absolutely beautiful. So yeah, I can see why you were very, very proud of that.
1: Well thank you. And I th- I think just to finish on that, I mean I think one of the things that Shoshana feels strongly, and Turquoise Mountain works with Palestinians the West Bank, with Syrian refugees, works in Myanmar, she's just got back from Burma and in Afghanistan, is that Working on cultural heritage, supporting traditional craftspeople, supporting traditional architecture has one big benefit, which is that it gives people a sense of positive pride. It's not a sort of patronizing act where you're telling people what they're lacking. In, in her words, it's a type of development that works on an asset, not a deficiency. It, it, it allows people to really feel if you're an Afghan Uh, female craftswoman that you're producing something genuinely beautiful that people around the world want to buy and that you can make an income off so anyway thank you for 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 saying that
0: now rachel lee horsfield in his book that's your book rory and by the way you got five stars in a dutch paper i saw the other day so well done on that one that's
1: very good that's very good that was because of your amazing dutch listen (laughs) on that i was interviewed on a dutch podcast and they repeated your your phrase in dutch Oh, actually. And they said it, it kept, was very good.
0: It yeah, kept the feel of my Nordelsacher spell. In his book, yeah. Rory states that even if not conservative, he is Tory. What does that mean? I'm trying to persuade, says Rachel, my staunchly Labour partner, to warm to Rory by saying he's not a real Tory. But this statement in the book isn't helping. I've been accused of being a Tory apologist. So, what is that? What's the difference between being a conservative and being a Tory?
1: Um, I Well, I, I think it may be semantics, but for me, I think. Conservatives can be associated with a sort of Liz Truss view, which is cut the welfare state, radical cutting of taxes, radical free market stuff, quite revolutionary. For me, a Tory, I guess, is somebody who respects tradition, respects history, tends to think if it isn't broken, don't fix it. And you know, is is my love of landscape and the monarchy and the British Army and history and tradition. Now, Shoshana listening to all this, of course, says this is complete nonsense because on any actual policy issue, she says I'm usually pretty radical mm. and and you want big change and I want big change and I'm always trying to introduce, like you, compulsory voting, proportional representation, and Presumably generally form. in every department, yeah, every department I'm in, I'm trying to shake it up. So. Maybe I misunderstand myself. I, I have this kind of mystical idea that maybe I'm sort of completely in love with the British institutions. But in practice, whenever I actually get close to them, I want to I want to rip them up.
0: Okay. Well, let's just follow on from that with Jason Copsidas. If you had to join one of the mainstream UK parties today and campaign for them in the election, which one would it be? Fairly obvious for Alastair, says Jason. Not as obvious for Rory.
1: It's not not obvious for me at all. I'm very, very, I mean, the the natural one, of course, I was a conservative MP and I'd love to say the conservative party because I feel loyalty to my colleagues and party members. But the truth is that I find it very, very difficult at the moment. I mean, we've got this horrible sense that the right of the party is still got a kind of death grip. I mean, we're talking at a moment in which the vice chairman of the party, Lee Anderson, who's this extraordinary right-wing figure who actually came originally from a Labour background is now Mm. saying as a senior party official he's going to vote against the government's Rwanda bill because he thinks it's not tough or right-wing enough. And this kind of stuff I find very troubling.
0: I, I think we should, if our listeners can stomach it, we should put in the newsletter a video that was put out last week by the Tory party of Rishi Sunak, doing a joint Q&A with Lee Anderson that was honestly one of the most cringeworthy things I've ever seen in my life. But what it was showing was obviously Rishi Sunak trying to sort of, you know, show that he's he's down with Lee, as it were. Um, and they were telling each other how well Brexit was going. They were telling each other why we should all be so proud to be British. It was utterly cringe-making. And this is what happens, I'm afraid, Rishi, when you give power and status and influence to people who ultimately are not going to buy you. Um,
1: and I think you need to lead. One really interesting thing from John Curtis, this famous pollster, this famous professor of polling, was he seemed to be saying the polls vindicated your strong instinct, which was that Rishi Sunak's biggest mistake was not coming out very, very hard in favor of the Parliamentary Standards Committee. Tell us a bit about that, because you, you watched that polling presentation.
0: Yeah, I, in fact, I've written about this in my New European column. because What, what he was essentially saying is that And this is absolutely right. Remember we said last week, Peter Kellner always says, follow the signal, not the noise when it comes to polling. If you look at the polling in recent years, only two episodes have fundamentally shifted the dial. Okay. One was Partygate and the other was the mini budget. Partygate led to a massive decline in Johnson's ratings, in the Tory party's ratings, and they have not really recovered from it trusts and the Kwarteng and the mini-budget led to a massive decline, and they haven't really recovered from it. Now, Sunak, in not endorsing and supporting the Privileges Committee report, but instead running away from it, trying to avoid it completely, he missed the opportunity to signal that he was a genuine change from those two events. By not endorsing the report, he essentially said, oh, Partygate's not as big a deal as you seem to think. And of course, the What the polls show is that the public thought it really, really mattered, and they thought the trust mattered. I think the post office actually has the capacity, and this is, I think, is why they are trying to focus it so much on Ed Davey, Keir Starmer, is because it does have the capacity to be damaging, but not in the same, in polling terms, not in the same league as
1: Partygate and
0: trust. So, yeah, I think I think John Curtis is right that Rishi Sunak missed a major opportunity there.
1: Um, But it's it's something that you you said at the time, but. It would have been historically difficult because there would have been a massive problem of party management, wouldn't there? Because he's yeah, trying it's got to a deal problem with, with party management anyway. So he needed to just be brave and lean into it. But but obviously the reason he didn't do it, the, the kind of counter argument to you, if you're playing devil's advocate is the members had voted for Liz Truss. Lots of the members of parliament felt that he'd betrayed Boris Johnson. He was trying to reheal the party. And if he'd really lent in to going anti-Boris, anti-Liz Truss, he would have alienated a lot of party members, alienated quite a lot of MPs, but maybe you say restored his position in the opinion polls. Maybe brought the public on side. Let's say
0: you start from the premise. I'm the fifth leader since <laughs> since David Cameron. So you've had Cameron, May, Johnson, Truss, and now me. That's what he says. And the public are beginning to wonder whether we're actually a serious party of government. My responsibility now is to show that we are. That means showing. I am very, very different. So when he said integrity, professionalism, and accountability, it was the right thing to say. But then in not endorsing the Privileges Committee report, he didn't deliver on those words. And so he's ended up with the worst of both worlds. He's ended up people not respecting him because he hasn't shown the necessary leadership. And the party management problems which prevented him from doing that, he still got them with spades to the point that As you say, a guy he appointed to be vice chairman of the Conservative Party is without any seeming sanction going around the place telling MPs to vote against a government piece of legislation. Mad.
1: Maybe what you're saying is, look, it couldn't be worse than it currently is. And there might have been some risk. He might have blown up the party. He might have had a really difficult management issue. But in the long run, it was worth taking that risk because it was the only way of getting the public back on side.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what I think the public is seeing is and i honestly i really think he's got to stop doing all this non-stop sort of embarrassing communication stuff these endless videos showing how marvelous he is back to the point we discussed with gillian keegan people don't feel the country's in great shape at the moment so stop telling us that it is and stop telling us when we know that you're flying around in helicopters and jets, and you're massively wealthy, and people are starting to think that you're going to move on to California pretty soon anyway. Do the job. Do the job. Doing the job is not sitting down with Lee Anderson, having these jokey videos about, you know, questions put in by public or party members. And I'll tell you the other thing I thought over the weekend is that on the the Houthis um, and what's happening in the Red Sea, if you were watching in. Who would you think was the prime minister right now? David Cameron.
1: David Cameron's the one who's... Leading on so much of this, isn't he? Yeah. Leading on so much of this, yeah. So um, sh-
0: do the job and show some leadership.
1: Yeah, and, and the jokey stuff doesn't really suit him anyway, I think. I mean, when I see him doing the jokey stuff, it doesn't really seem to be his his style. Portugal elections, LP. 2024 seems to be the year of all elections. Will you be looking to Portugal from alleged corruption scandals in the Socialist Party to the main opposition party refusing deals with the rising populist right, rebuilding a historic coalition from 1979? Quite a lot to get your teeth in. I'd love to hear your take. So we, We've done a little bit about this to remind people. We, we covered this when Prime Minister Antonio Costa, very, very interesting figure. He comes from uh, mixed parentage. His, his father was a Goan from India with these very radical parents, his, his mother very much on the radical left as and his father a radical writer. A much loved and quite successful Prime Minister of, of Portugal suddenly found himself drawn down by incredible corruption scandals mm. involving public infrastructure projects, cash going missing, weird payoffs from state companies. Any, any thoughts on Portugal, Alistair?
0: Well, we definitely will talk about it. I think the election's in March and it's a uh, election of the, the, the whole assembly. And <laughs> I think it will be interesting within the European context because, of course, we've got the European elections coming up to sort of get a sense of Portuguese public opinion. Because Costa is socialist party leader who was, as you say, pretty popular. He got over 40% of the votes last time. He got 120 seats in the assembly. Main opposition, the PSD, Social Democrats, they were 77 seats And the far right, Chega, which is Portuguese for enough, they got 7%. So it will be interesting to see and to see whether just how damaging it is for a party of government where the guy's seriousness and experience and feeling that he was a bit different to most politicians when he gets caught up in a a corruption scandal. And I think his argument is that, yes, there was corruption, but as it were, he's not the big corrupt guy, but he presided over it. That's why he's... He's, sort of, he's stepping down. So yeah, in answer to the question, we will be talking about it and it will be one of the more interesting European elections this year.
1: This question of, um, and we talked about in the last podcast about apologizing, taking responsibility, and I guess the question of resigning. Um, one of the things that's happening increasingly in British politics, and I guess this was true even under New Labour and, and Mandelson, which is that people take responsibility, resign, and then they pop back again six, seven months later. And I guess that probably wouldn't have been true in the 50s, 60s, 78s, 80s, you know, when Profumo resigned, he didn't come popping back again. When Carrington resigned, he didn't come popping back again. It, it's as though we've developed quite kind of short attention spans, haven't we? We people kind of resign and then everyone thinks, oh, well, that's fine, he's resigned. And then a few months later, they come back again. I mean, Grant Shapps, I think, was booted out twice. Famously, um, Swella Braverman was back within a few weeks, wasn't she?
0: Absolutely. Well, that was that was another point of Rishi Sunak weakness, I think. You know, for her to have been. Sacked for breaking the ministerial code, and then brought back in within a matter of weeks. I think it was a terrible s- signal. But again, it was him trying to putting party management ahead of the opportunity he had to show to show uh, real leadership. Um, now Bettina Struff, interesting yes. name, but she sent in a whole welter of questions. Let me just throw two of them, both interesting. She says, "I've just been blocked by Green Jenny Jones. Jenny Jones being a big figure in the Green Party." for saying that I'll vote tactically at the next election rather than green. Now, Bettina is a green, she says, because under first-past-the-post in my constituency, green would be a wasted vote. Would either of you guys vote tactically at the next election if it came to it? Also from Bettina, Alistair. bearing in mind Sadiq Khan's recent statements, do you think the time is yet right for Starmer to start talking about joining the single market?
1: And if not, why not? On the first one, I would vote tactically. Would you, Rory? Yes, I I think tactical voting makes sense. I don't know why people are so against tactical voting. Well, if you're
0: Jenny Jones and you're trying to fight for the Greens, you probably are quite angry when people who see they are deep down their Greens say they're going to vote Labour or Lib Dem. But I think that they should embrace tactical voting as well. I really do. And then the second point, so Sadiq Khan commissioned a report which, like several other big economic reports, have indicated that Brexit has done fundamental damage to the economy. The the answer is, Bettina, I wish that Labour would move much more towards a position that recognises if their growth mission is to be met, then we have to get serious about trying to repair the damage done by Brexit, and in particular by the the new trading arrangements now in place. So as to whether he thinks the time is right, clearly he doesn't. He's the leader of the Labour Party. Rory is convinced he's going to be the next Prime Minister, and he probably will be. But that that is a nettle that is going to have to be grasped. I think, sooner rather than later. Good. Now, here's one, Rory. This is a big one. Big question. Oh, yes. Box marked other. What are things you regret in your personal life and also in your professional lives? Blimey. Personal life, I think I do regret the extent to which I underestimated just how 24-7, all-consuming, the job that I did with three young children growing up was going to be. Uh, not sure I could have done anything different, but that is kind of a regret. And in my professional life, as I've said to you before, I do regret not standing as an MP, probably back in the mid two thousands.
1: Very good. So personal life. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to go too deeply into personal stuff. Go but on. I, I think it's, no, I think it's. <laughs> I think it's about. I think it's about um, about relationships when I was younger and, and the way in which I, I don't think I treated uh, girlfriends properly. Um, oh. And I think in my professional life, regrets are a very interesting thing, aren't they? I mean, I I don't think much about the past, but I'm very aware that, for example, I was flattered into taking a job as a Harvard professor in 2008, which really didn't suit me. Mm. And I think it's a real warning of the way in which you can take a job because it sounds great or it's well paid or it's got a big title Mm. without really stopping to think, is this really what I want to be? be doing with my time. I mean, the, the most satisfying job I ever had was working on Turquoise Mountain, which was restoring you know, a small city block in Kabul. And it seemed very tiny, but it was much more fulfilling in a way than many of the bigger jobs I've done. And I think a lot of my regrets are always about being tempted into things that sound impressive, but are actually pretty debilitating.
0: That's really interesting, though, because you, you talked about being flattered into, into taking on something that you probably shouldn't have done. That's exactly what happened to me in the mid 1980s when I was flattered into being made the youngest news editor in Fleet Street. I was 28, and within a year, I was in a psychiatric hospital um, because that sort of was a factor probably in what led to my breakdown. So I I definitely regret that move, and yet I think in a bizarre sort of way, it led to the breakdown, which I think led to, in some ways, to me making myself, Um, so yeah. Interesting, but f- being flattered into doing things you don't want to is a is an ever-present risk, I think.
1: Now, shall we talk about Mr. Attal? Yes, go on, tell us about that. This is absolutely fascinating. So, so for listeners, this is to do with the, the new prime minister and the new foreign minister of France. Tell us, give us a bit of the background. But, well, yeah. Jacob Jones, will Attal's youth and charisma
0: revive Macron's government as the right is rising in France? So, Gabriel, again, I sometimes talk about how Vukic was sort of, you know, my level during the Kosovo conflict. And he's now gone on to be this very, 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 very powerful leader of Serbia. And Gabriel is is one of those guys that I kind of very briefly met when I first was sort of, you know, talking to Macron when he was a presidential hopeful and candidate. And he's now the bloody prime minister at 34. And he's just appointed. I mean, could this happen anywhere apart from France? I don't know. His foreign minister replacing the excellent Catherine Colonna, who's a very, very old friend of mine, but she's now been moved out, to be replaced by a guy called Stéphane Séjourné, who until a year ago was was Attal's civil law partner. So will it revive Macron's government in a funny sort of way? I think it already has. I think Atal has really brought a sense of immediate energy and vibrancy and Um, I listened to, um, I think it was The World this weekend, had um, a a reporter in Paris going around people asking French people what they thought of this new 34-year-old prime minister, and they were almost overwhelmingly positive. It was very, very interesting. So he's clearly got charisma, great communicator. In the end, it will be about delivery. The other name to watch out for is this this guy, the number two in the National Front part in, in Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement the new National Front Party, this guy, Bardet, Jordan Bardella, he's 28, and he's a deputy and he's going to be a big figure in the campaign as well. So yeah, youth definitely much, very much on the agenda in France.
1: And presumably this this really matters because the next presidential election in France, 2027, Macron can't run again. And the front runner at the moment is Le Pen. So is this guy that he's brought in, your charismatic young prime minister, the potential successor for Macron? Is Is that the person who's going to be running against Le Pen?
0: Put it this way, if you are the prime minister, I mean, it's very different. When people say prime minister, a French prime minister does not have the same profile or power as a British prime minister because the British prime minister is is the head of the government. Macron is the head of the government. Macron is also the head of state. He is immensely powerful in the French system. But if you're looking for a platform from which to build, then being prime minister is a very, very good one. The only downside to that is that within the French system, as Elizabeth Board has just found out, the French Prime Minister tends to act as a bit of a lightning conductor and take a lot of the blame. So that's the bit that Attal will have to avoid. But certainly, he's—he's. He's, I would say I don't know what the what the bookies are saying, but I'd say it puts him in a very, very strong position, and he would then become the youngest president in French history.
1: Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, Don Levermond, I had to get out of Ecuador pretty quickly last week. So my question for RNA. Is- is by declaring a state of emergency, is the current course of action the correct one in Ecuador? How can the country regain its safety? So Ecuador is something that we were talking about November because there was an election in Ecuador and a horrible election in which um, one of the major candidates was assassinated. President Daniel Nabo was elected and last week there was an explosion of gang violence, um, including a gang seizing a television station in a major city and going on air. And a man called Fito, who is one of the most famous gang leaders in Ecuador, who'd been associated with the assassination. His lawyers managed to get him moved out of maximum security. He released a music video. And now Fito seems to have managed to escape from jail uh, from his 34-year sentence.
0: Yeah. And it's it's also led to a lot of violence within the jails. Um, In fact, I think today the Ecuadorian military is saying they've they finally managed to get control back of the of the prisons because dozens of prison officers were being held hostages but they they seem to have sent in their elite forces and they've now uh, got a grip of it and of course ecuador has been relatively peaceful compared to other countries in the in the region but i think what's happened here is that it became part of the drug trading routes. And because Ecuador wasn't the main kind of focus of it, that was more sort of Colombia in particular, I think there was quite a lot of sort of turning a blind eye to some of the the crime that was going on. And I think that part of what's happened is that Ecuador has then become in its own right a very, very big part of the global drugs market, which has led to a lot of the gang warfare that has now spread to the prisons and spread into real difficulty for the law enforcement authorities. I think the listener probably did do the right thing. I think it's going to be pretty scary there for a while, which is such a shame because it's actually not been its not been seen in the same light as Colombia and some of the other countries that have that have really, really struggled with this for many, many years.
1: Well, it's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Because it, it is one of the big themes, um, Central Latin America, that we've talked about populism and the way in which democracy and elections are going in Central Latin America. We've talked a bit about Venezuela and the spillover of the refugee crisis there. But of course, This question around drugs and gangs connected both with narcotics, but also smuggling gangs of uh, migrants into the United States, Mm. as you say, is now destabilizing previously relatively stable countries and drawing more and more people in, and and in some cases, as in El Salvador, provoking these very, very aggressive authoritarian right-wing responses to try to bring these gangs back Mm. under control and reassert the state. What I don't quite get about this, and you know, uh, so this
0: guy Fito, who is yeah. this gang, gang leader who's Adolfo uh, Villamar. So he was in prison and the plan apparently was to was to move him to a smaller prison because it, it, they felt they'd be able to sort of take care of him and stop him being so influential within the prison system from this this smaller prison. <laughs> By the time they
1: went to the cell to move him, He'd gone. <laughs> they just couldn't find him. They looked all the way around the cell. They looked under the bed, and there he, he <laughs> and, wasn't there anymore. And so
0: he's he's out. The how do you when you're one of the the most heavily guarded prisoners? How so? Two apparently two a couple of prison guards have been arrested, and have been charged with helping mm. him to escape. And meanwhile, his release, and then the release of another gang leader has kicked off these riots. Um, but there were some really s- sort of eerie pictures I saw on a, on a German uh, news site of kind of the streets in the capital, because of course they've, they've imposed a curfew. So it's pretty, yeah, pretty scary.
1: Okay. Well, Alice, there's so many other great questions, which I'd love us to get onto next week, but I think we're coming towards the end of question time. Let me just, one final one. Go on. Shane, I enjoy all your book suggestions, but curious to know how you retain the info. What's your book note-taking strategy?
0: Well, you're much better at this than I am. I mean, you have this capacity to read a book and then three weeks later on the podcast say you've read it. And we were doing an event last night with some American congressmen and women. And and I, if you remember, I mentioned a book that I'm reading uh, by a woman called Monica Guzman, an American book called I Never Thought of It That Way, which is a a fascinating book, actually, because she is... She's a daughter of Mexican immigrants, and she's a pretty ardent Democrat, and both of her Mexican immigrant parents are two-time Trump voters. And the book is about how do you manage relationships when you don't really understand why somebody else thinks like they do. And so what I do with books, I tend to, I do write on them. I mark them, I'm afraid. I know some authors hate that, but I do write on them. And when it's something I want to commit to memory, I take a photograph of the page And I just keep it with me for a few days, and I keep looking at it from time to time. But even with that, I forget most of the things that I read, to be frank. You've got a better memory than I have. That's the truth.
1: Well, I'm helped a lot by Kindle, of course, which has got a great note-taking facility, which allows you then to go back onto all the passages you've noted, and you can get it all in a file. So all the extracts from all the different books you've read in the year, you can see, and and it's a good, good way of getting up to speed. But I, I like your photograph strategy. I'll try that too.
0: Yeah. 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 You just take a picture and then you occasionally when, you, when you're flicking through your photos to pick your tree of the day, you see, oh, yeah, there's that thing that I wanted to know about <laughs> the fact that there are more sales of nappies to adults in Japan than there are to children.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And on that, best, best wishes. Bye-bye. All the best.